Hello, I'm Evans Mirajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. And on this podcast, my guest is my dear friend, Marie-France Lefebvre, who is on the faculty at CCM. Marie-France leads the opera department, is a celebrated coach and collaborative pianist, both here in Cincinnati and in all the major opera houses of our country and abroad as well. We'll be talking in this hour about her rather unusual path from a little village in the woods in Quebec to the Met and beyond. Marie-France, you now have been at CCM for how many years? Oh, boy. I think that was my 12th year. I started in 2008. Seems like like yesterday. It's amazing. Yes. Uh, Tell us us the path that brought you to CCM. Where were you immediately before that, and how did you come to work with us? Um, I was at Michigan State University for four years. And uh, after my first year there, Um, I got a call from conductor named Mark Gibson. He was looking for a coach to go to Luca with the CCM summer program. Um, He had gotten my name from Gustav Meyer. And since we both had studied at University of Michigan, Gustav knew both of us. So after a few summers there, there was an opening at CCM. And immediately I got uh, emails from... Donna Lowy, David Adams, Mark Gibson, saying, hey, would you be interested? So the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know that people listening to this podcast will immediately be intrigued by the music in your speaking voice. From whence does this very musical voice come? What part of the world? Hmm. Well, from the middle of the woods in the northwest of the province of Quebec, little town called Ville-Marie. And so your path to becoming a a collaborative pianist as well as a teacher of singing, or singers, I should say, starts in a very small place. How how are the seeds planted in your youth to become a musician? Well, first of all, my mother played piano. There was always a piano in our house. Um, I had six siblings ahead of me and one after. My oldest two sisters also played, especially the one who is just before me. And I think I was completely in awe of everything she said, did, read. So obviously that made me want to do just like her. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to play every piece she played but she was eight and a half years older. So I had to be a little patient, but that's how it started. And was there, was it all classical music growing up? Were there, was there, were there other kinds of music that were played and sung in the house? Was it a really musical household in general? Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, my mother was a huge classical music fan. Um, And she was one of 19 children. And I don't really know where she found all this music, but she listened to um, a lot of, actually, Schwarzkopf. And Mm -hmm. uh, she also listened to popular singers, Nana Mouskouri and a lot of things like that. 
Um, my father listened to, I think, Mantovani Orchestra, maybe. In his 101 strings, yes, yes of course. Yes, <laughs> and uh, otherwise, you know, my siblings listened to Pink Floyd and Genesis, and I knew next to nothing about that. I wanted to play classical piano, and the nuns, strangely, were a little bit reluctant at first, because I wanted to play from the time I was four or five, and I was very small, very short, and I looked to be three. So they kept saying, no, not this year. So finally, I begged my sister, the pianist, to no avail. Um, but eventually she caved, and she started to teach me to read notes, just like solfege on the page. And I was really good at it because I thought, if it can convince the nuns to take me, I'm going to do it. So I went in that year. I was seven. And the nun finally said, okay, you can start. <laughs> it sounds to me you have a trait that I've found in many other people who have such strong convictions about their love for music is that you were really stubborn as a kid. You were going to, you were the kind who probably would sit at the table if you didn't want to eat something and sit at the table until you had to go to bed because you refused to eat it. And then you would do. Yep. Is that about right? Were you a stubborn kid? (laughs) Yeah. I think, uh, you know, what I've learned with my children is that I'm supposed to use the word persistent, but stubborn is more accurate. Yes. I did not like to go to bed, for instance, at night. So I would very convincingly talk to my parents until they'd say, okay, you can watch this, but then you have to go to bed. So, yes, I was rather persistent. (laughs) And did you have to uh, fight for keyboard time with your sister? I mean, there was only one piano in the house, I presume. Yes, Um, but my sister... Strangely, because the level of teaching we had in the middle of nowhere uh, was a little limited, she left when she was 16 to go to Montreal, and she studied at Vincent d'Indy. So that means we really overlapped full-time in the house playing piano for about a year. So it was okay. (laughs) Um, and describe for us, if you would, so that uh, those listening to this podcast can get a sense of what was your small town like? Do you have some strong visual recollections, images of what it was like to grow up where you did? Oh, yes. In fact, um, it was a very gorgeous little town, um, which won prize a few years ago of the most beautiful town in Quebec. Um, It only had maybe 2,100 people then. Um, There was one, what we called our big main street, which led to a lake, Lac Témiscamingue. And at the lake, there was a nice place with some sailboats, some little motorboats. We even had one at some point. Um, And there were very few things to do in town. Uh, there was the pool, and in that same building, there was bowling alley. Uh, there was big hockey season, of course. We all skated. It's Canada, of course, and Quebec especially. <laughs> yes. 
Um, and there was not so much artistically going on, but my mother would find everything that existed. So I remember, I think it was Alexandre Lagoya came to give a guitar recital right. at the movie theater, which happened to be across the street from our house. My parents had a clothing store. Well, my father, I should say, but my mother worked there too in between the eight children. And uh, there were nuns, thankfully, who taught music. So for me, that was the saving grace. But uh, culturally, it was difficult, I think. I felt that early on. And I was looked at a little bit as a nerd in that town because I was not so interested even as a teenager in my hair, my makeup, and my heels, but rather playing the piano. So I was strange there. And did your family get uh, to Montreal from time to time? Were you taken to the big city to hear the great orchestra or anything like that? Uh, You know, I went to Montreal. I remember when I was six years old. That tells you exactly when I was born, because we went to the Montreal Expo. Oh, sure. With my father and my older two sisters. We were the privileged ones. My mother stayed home with the rest. Um, not really any concerts at that point, but uh, when I was 11, I went to Camp Musical du Lac Saint-Jean, which was for me an extraordinary summer, uh, probably three weeks. It was a music camp where my sister, of course, had gone first. And uh, it was it had practice huts in the mountain. We had piano lessons several times a week. And there were string players and an orchestra. Because in Ville-Marie, there was only piano and recorder and then the whatever rock bands that people had in their garage. (laughs) Um, But when I was 14, my mother decided I needed to go to the conservatory, and she moved with me and my little sister, who has Down syndrome. Um, She sold my father's business. My father had passed when I was 10. Um, And the minute we arrived there, it was heaven. In all where we lived, on the Quebec side, uh, we immediately made our way to the National Arts Center, where my mother proceeded to buy, with her very small budget, subscriptions to the National Arts Center Orchestra, to music for a Sunday afternoon, which was the chamber music season, to the piano recital series, and to the French theater. So we were at National Arts Center regularly every week. And I will never forget the first concert I heard with uh, Mario Bernardi conducting Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. And I was transported directly to heaven Um, so that was the first real orchestra I heard at 14. And they had also at that time a sort of short summer opera season. And I remember seeing La Traviata and I thought, wow, 
we have arrived. <laughs> if you would, Marie-France, uh, because I'm sure you must have talked about it years later, um, did you ever speak with your mother in any detail about the, the course of, uh, as it were, decision-making that led her to make a momentous decision to sell the business, move away to help her gifted daughter achieve her dreams. Did you ever have a, any sort of conversations about how that process went for her? Well, my mother was an extraordinary woman, I think. Um, she had seen how difficult it had been for Josiane, my sister, to go to Toronto on her own at 16, speaking about, of course, maybe 12 words of English, uh, with no money, and to try and find her path without real support nearby. So she was 54, and her health was very good, but not perfect. And she knew how to live really on a shoestring and very intelligently. So she thought I really wanted to do this and she really supported me. So she decided we could just up and leave. And fortunately for me, many of my mothers, uh, I think there were 17 still living at that time, were living in the Ottawa area. Mm -hmm. So I was gaining conservatory and she was gaining her siblings and an artistic life, life that she really wanted to finally be able to enjoy. So you both, you worked. both won, you both oh, won yes. big time. <laughs> yes. Now you speak, you speak beautiful uh, Parisian French, but did you go up speaking that really wonderful, exotic Quebecois version of French as well? <laughs> Here comes my mother again. So, <laughs> yes, of course, um, we spoke a very, very heavily accented, accented, not accidented, um, French-Canadian accent. Mm -hmm. We had words that you could not recognize that have nothing to do with the higher French-Canadian accent of Montreal or Quebec City. Mm -hmm. So my mother, being my mother, decided that her children should speak a little bit better. So we were sent to something that was called, actually, a diction class on Saturday mm -hmm. morning. Uh, really, it was enunciation. This woman would take us through lots of text and make us pronounce like a French person does, not like a French Canadian living in Vinmerie. <laughs> so, yes. Can you still speak the dialect? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> I have a niece who still lives in Vinmerie. And when we get on the phone, within about 30 seconds, it comes running back. That's amazing. But you did learn to speak proper, uh, as it were, uh, mm -hmm. as it were, conservatory or <laughs> Sorbonne French, yes. which of course has aided you greatly in your career. And we'll we'll talk about that as well today. So here you are. You have come to the big city of Ottawa, one of the cultural centers of the country, and you're beginning to make your way, learning how to be a practicing musician. 
Mm-hmm. What's the next step in terms of your education beyond Ottawa? Uh, so I was at the conservatory where I studied with um, Dale Bartlett for a few years and then with Monique Collet-Samain, a Belgian woman who taught me the Belgian accent, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> then I was teaching piano in a small local school for a few years. And in that school, there was a wonderful singer from Ottawa who asked if I would play for her singers on the final recital of that year. And I said, sure. And she also started singing with me. And I knew nothing of that repertoire, really. Uh, I knew Carmen, maybe, by ear. So she sang a Butterfly Aria, and I thought, wow, this is kind of powerful. Um, and I started playing for a little troupe that we had that did some uh, Offenbach and things like that. Um, and I realized that I really enjoyed singers, and they seemed to enjoy my work with them. So I thought I could go explore. I looked at Manhattan School, and I looked at maybe two other schools, but the only one I really want to audition for was Manhattan. So I went to New York, um, had an audition, stayed in town. My sister, Josiane, the pianist, came to meet me after the audition. We went to the jazz clubs for a few days. Hmm. And... uh, I had no money, of course, but I was fortunate. Manhattan School offered me full scholarship and a small fellowship, and then another one as I started. Uh, I got a small grant from the government in Quebec because there were no accompanying programs in Quebec in 1987. And so I went to New York, and I thought again... I had arrived. <laughs> it was so uh, sort of overwhelmingly beautiful and powerful. Uh, and it was a kid in a candy store with the Metropolitan Opera, the New York City Opera, and all the yes. smaller companies, and the Philharmonic, and Carnegie Hall, and Lincoln oh. Center, and every visiting great uh, musical fireman, as it were, in the world, coming into yes. every <laughs> But, you know, looking back on those first encounters with young singers uh, in Ottawa that led you to New York. To this day, do you still remember a few of the very first things that either caught you by surprise in working with a singer or things you learned right away about working with singers? What are some of your first recollections as to, oh, this is different than playing on my own? Well, the first thing was, because I had done a little bit of accompanying, very little, but some with flutists so I had dealt a little bit with the breath but with singers it was entirely different because on top of breathing which as a pianist you can easily forget sadly uh, there was text and that changed the whole dynamic Uh, I was fascinated by the languages that I knew nothing about and but what really 
mm, fired me up, I think, was the intensity of communication that I thought possible with the immediacy of the human voice. And so I think I was more just fired up and excited than puzzled. I was fortunate that I think I naturally was able to turn my attention to them and their line so that the whole breathing and adjustments that you make naturally, which actually make the music much more intelligible, um, were very comfortable. I was fortunate. Vladimir Horowitz used to say that uh, all a pianist ever wants to do is for someone to say what a wonderful singing tone they have. All instruments try to imitate that original, very first musical instrument, the human voice. Mm -hmm. And as you are learning these precepts that you carry with you throughout your teaching and performing career, uh, what are some of the things that, even at this remove now many years later, still stay true to you from some of the very first things you learned? What are some of your initial precepts and Marie-France do's and don'ts that you still teach and you still abide by? Well, the first one that comes to mind is one that was very quickly confirmed by my teacher at the University of Michigan, who you know well, who everybody knows well. Martin Katz. Fantastic musician. Yes, and an extraordinary coach um, and just knows really everything one needs to know about this art form. And I remember one of us was playing in studio class or something, and the singer ran out of breath in the middle of a phrase, and he told us, It doesn't matter what the situation is. If you are performing and the singer runs out of breath, it is your fault. And that has stayed with me. Sometimes it's a little bit horrifying what comes with that thought. But I, if it is managed properly, it is true. We need to allow for the proper space for them to breathe. We need to truly know what is the tempo they need for a particular piece. And we need to understand how their body and their voice works. I think that is one of the big things. Tell me a little bit when you talk about tempo for them. So let's take a a very famous song. Let's say the the Schubert Ständchen. Mm-hmm. which is a, you know, a beautiful, uh, moderate tempo piece um, and sort of languorous and wistful and whatnot. But there are 50 tempos if there is one. How do you figure out for an individual singer what's that right tempo for their body? What are the things you're looking for and listening for to figure it out for you and for, for them? You know, it's always a little bit tricky. I'd say mm-hmm. some of it, and it's that's not a scientific answer, is instinct. When you hear the voice, you get a little bit of an idea of the weight of the voice helps you maybe gauge. One thing 
Warren Jones talked about in one masterclass I played for him in Tanglewood. Someone was singing Il Mio Tesoro, and there were issues with tempo. And he talked about listening to the singer's vibrato. And, you know, he did not quantify or detail, but I think I do listen to that somehow, and that gives you a bit of an idea. So, um, for the lay, so for the lay listener, Marie-France, vibrato, of course, um, is not an easy thing to describe without hearing it, but it is basically the pulsation, the speed of pulsation of the tone of the voice mm-hmm. that gives it some of its innate basic color. And there are vibratos that are faster. A real fast one can sound, unfortunately, like a, let's say a, a goat. Yes. <laughs> a really, really slow one can sound like you're not, you're singing more than one pitch at once, but yes. finding that, but finding the right speed of the emission of the tone um, is a, a lovely vibrato. And even within that, there are ranges. There can be slower mm-hmm. ones that are beautiful, faster ones that are beautiful. But you're using this sort of physical vibration almost, almost to help you understand yes. what should be the speed at which you accompany or join this person in music. Yes. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And that is one of my big preoccupations. And maybe that's why I really like to play auditions which is such an odd situation to think that, yeah, maybe we've played these arias 100, 200, 500 times, but singers walk in sometimes that we've never seen, heard before, and immediately we have to sort of tune in to what they're doing and see how we can best help support what they want to do and how they want to do it. And these are split-second decisions you are making because you are making all the adjustments while you are playing and while they are singing and while you're trying to figure out if their page turns are okay or if the music is going to fall off the rack or if they're immediately going to choke and throw up in the middle of the audition and run out of the room. (laughs) Yes, indeed. So you're in New York as a student in the late 1980s, starting in 1987, some would argue a real golden age for opera in New York. City mm-hmm. opera was at its height of success in the immediate sort of post-Sills years. And the Met still had Domingo and Pavarotti mm-hmm. regularly on its stages, as well as the entire generation of people coming up, the young Rene Fleming and so on and so forth. Do you have a couple of particular memories from your time living as a student in New York that were standout musical experiences that you recall to this day? Of course. I'm sure I've told you. Um, I was a little bit of a snob about opera because I don't mean uh, the art form, uh, but I mean as a pianist. I was not going to be an opera pianist. For me, that was not a good label. The sarcasm from your voice comes across very clearly. (laughs) 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 So my friend, uh, one of my friends from Montreal, um, wanted to bring me to a Saturday performance at the Met. I had not been yet. This was my first semester. And so on a glorious Saturday, we got up at crack of dawn. And I don't remember the lady's name, but you probably know 
that lady who was there, we would go by at, I don't know, 8 a.m. She would give us a number. Then we would go have breakfast and hang out and come back when the box office was about to open. And she mm. would line us up by numbers uh, <laughs> to buy, you know, tickets for that day, last minute yeah. and cheap and student tickets. So Danny brought me, Danny Nachman was his name, and we went to get tickets to La Bohème with Pavarotti, Freni, Kleiber conducting. So, and it was this wonderful uh, Zeffirelli production. Let's say that I walked out of there with a very different opinion about the thought of being an opera pianist. It was instantaneous. <laughs> My goodness. Nothing like starting at the top. No routine <laughs> performance with second or third cast and a, and a staff conductor. You, uh, you seem to have... You seem to have you have lived already under quite a lucky star. Mm -hmm. So your sights turned, and opera became very important to you. Yep. And did that is that eventually what led you to Martin Katz and the University of Michigan? Part of that passion as well. Yeah, I was starting to do more opera. Um, let me think. So I was at Manhattan. 87, and I stretched into a third year for no other reason than I wanted to stay in the States because I didn't know what I would do in Canada at that point. So 89, I had gone to Aspen in the summer. And there I was playing for master classes, um, for oratorio class. I met George Shirley. Uh, I was working with Adele Addison, who I knew from Manhattan. And uh, through George Shirley, I met some fantastic singers. Uh, one was Timothy Jones, wonderful baritone. And we became very, very, very good friends. And uh, we worked together a lot. And he spoke of Martin's teaching. And so I auditioned and went to do my DMA with Martin. I would say it's while I was there that I truly started to develop this great passion for opera. Um, I played for the opera at school. Uh, I started going to Santa Fe. That was a funny one the first time. I played an audition for John Crosby. Uh, I Legendary. Played Founder and first mm -hmm. chief executive and uh, also artistic director and yeah. regular conductor at Santa Fe. Oh, yes. <laughs> the Strauss um, Opera every summer. Sorry? He, played, he conducted the Strauss Opera every summer, exactly. Oh, yes. And he, well, everybody warned me, you're going to go play for him. He is very quiet. He may not look at you. He will maybe say hello and goodbye. And so I went and I played See si Miki Amano Mimi. With or without and a singer, by the way? How does this without, kind of an audition work? It, so was not, it was not at all these kinds of auditions that my students go through. Hmm. I just went to his office. He had a piano. I played. He conducted a little bit. 
then I played, I had prepared Zerbinetta Zaria. I think that may be what won him. I finished the audition and he asked if I had any opera experience and I said no. Hmm. And he said, well, if I have anything, it would be playing chorus rehearsals. And I said, that's okay. I just want to see if I like opera. So I went back to, that was prior to going to Michigan. That was January 1990. So I went back to International House and I got a call saying that I could have a position to play chorus rehearsals within a day or something, they told me. So I went to Michigan. Thankfully, I had um, one year of Martin, I think, by the time I went, or maybe I went before. I don't remember. And uh, in Santa Fe, I thought, wow. There, uh, I got lucky again. It was uh, the Strauss that year was Ariadne of Naxos. Ah. Yes, which is why I was so excited last summer (laughs) to finally play it a -hmm. long time later. Um, So my only association with the Strauss was to go hear it, which I did. Every performance of it because Alessandra Mark and uh, Ben Hepner were singing. Small potatoes. (laughs) And it was extraordinary. So I just really could not stay away and went back every, every, every time. So after that, I continued going to Santa Fe two more summers. And then I think I was kind of at a transition place where playing chorus maybe was no longer what I should do. And I've been very fortunate my whole career, I would say. So a person named Alan Nathan, who very sadly passed away actually a few weeks ago, um, was then chorus master and head of music staff at what was then the Washington Opera. Mm-hmm. He heard me play a scene from maybe Dialogues with Carmelites and something else at the Apprentice Scenes program. And after I came back from Santa Fe, I got a phone call from him asking if I could come and work on La Cenerentola and Turandot in the coming season, which, of course, was going to wreak havoc on my doctoral studies. But Martin was fine. He let me go. It was uh, December to February, I think. So that's kind of how that all started. And what's happened in the course of your career, you maintain a very busy schedule in your position at CCM, Mm -hmm. but you still are something of a from time to time visiting firemen, so to speak, (laughs) in opera companies around the country (laughs) and around the world. You are regularly at at the Metropolitan Opera and the San Francisco Opera and several other places and you come in, you work on a production, um, and um, six, eight, ten weeks later, you go back. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for you to share with our listeners a couple of a couple of more recent memorable experiences of when you've gone into an opera house uh, to work on a production. I seem to recall a particularly joyous time spent last year at the Met, if I'm not mistaken, or last even as early as the fall at the Met? 
I last year I was extremely fortunate. I was invited to work on Peleas et Mélisande with Yannick Nézességuin. It was our first professional encounter, and actually it was the first time I met him. So fellow French-Canadian. Uh-huh. But yes. not, from a, not from a small town in the middle of nowhere. He was at least from Montreal, right? Uh, <laughs> he was a big I'm not boy. sure if he was from Montreal or from Lac-Saint-Jean originally, but he's certainly, <laughs> yes, not from the middle of the woods like me. <laughs> <laughs> but you bonded because you're both French-Canadian. And did you speak in that wonderful uh, dialect when you two were alone or no? Always uh, correct? That is something we like to even... Um, in the middle of a music rehearsal when we take a break that we've done a few times, we've demonstrated <laughs> to the cast how we would speak a particular French sentence. So you the take show. the most elegant Metterlink uh, from, from Pegas and Melisande <laughs> and speak it in the middle of the woods, as it were. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yep, it's something else. Um, and then I also did that same season, uh, Dialogue des Carmelites, with him. The first time uh, Pelias was as a prompter, and Dialogue I was playing. And, of course, I was there two months ago uh, on Werther until the famous day where the world stopped. Yeah. How sad. But, you know, not only do you not only do you coach singers and help them in rehearsal and whatnot, you occupy an increasingly rare activity, at least in our country, because we don't have that. We have almost no repertoire houses anymore. That of a prompter. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what a prompter does, where they are in a performance, and maybe a, a hilarious recollection of doing that peculiar job unique to opera. Um, so during the performance, we are in, uh, that little, uh, house that has a little roof sticking out of the, um, the stage floor. Yeah, exactly. So you're, uh, basically had- your, your head is sticking up only facing the singers mm-hmm. out of the side of the audience. And all you can really see is their feet. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a little bit of an effort. I'd set the the visual atmosphere for our (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Yeah, there are wonderful pictures um, online of prompters viewed from the stage, so you can see. Um, So what do we do in there? All kinds of things. Uh, There are singers who tell me that they, and they have that with all of us, you know, different people, maybe closer to different prompters. But sometimes they are just comfortable knowing that we're there. There are people who, I would say, never forget things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not, you know, all all the singers I've worked with are wonderful. But different people are thinking about different things. I don't understand how a singer walks, sings, moves, picks people <laughs> up. Uh, I don't know. Follows the conductor. Um So the primary thing that people think of when they hear the word prompter is somebody who is giving lines to singers. Mm -hmm. Of course, there is some of that. For some people, there is a lot of that. 
Um, and for some people, it's very rare. We have to try and read their body language and see when they're about to get in trouble. Um, There are singers who need us always, and it is good that we are in the rehearsal room from day one, so we Mm -hmm. get to know them. Some of them will need us just while they're learning the blocking. Some of them will say, keep talking to me whether I need it or not. Some singers will say, it's okay, I don't need it, but if you see that I'm in distress, please help me, which is the Mm -hmm. hardest. Yeah, of course. Because you have to really stay on your toes. Um, But more and beyond that, we are there to support uh, the conductor's musical wishes in terms of phrasing, uh, direction, of course, tempo, if things start to derail a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, On a stage like the Met stage, which is so big, uh, the distance from the back of the stage to the pit can be, depending on what the sets are, uh, a source of confusion because of the delay. So we can help uh, sort of re-coordinate things. And if one person falls off musically because they tried to come in and the door didn't open and they couldn't sing their line or their colleague couldn't hear them, we are there to make sure and help the next person come back in in the right place so that music can continue. We can help with dynamics. We can help show a singer to continue through a phrase where they want to be reminded not to breathe. And then we can help show them to breathe. So there are many things we can do. And sometimes a smile is all they need. And you have to do this all without the audience really knowing you're doing your job. How do you know how loud to be? (laughs) Ah, Well, yes, that's always, always a question. Mm-hmm. And different sets, different people need different things. The first time I went to prompt at the Met, I was prompting Le Nozze di Figaro. And I remember it was a tech rehearsal or something. And it was my first time really on the stage. We had worked, but in the rehearsal room until then. And at a break, I heard very loud Craig Rutenberg calling me saying, Marie-France, Marie-France, please come see Craig. Marie-France, Marie-France. And I went and I found him and he looked at me and he said, Mabiche, you are way too loud. Oh dear. (laughs) But fortunately, it was just a tech rehearsal, but you know, I had to get accustomed. So. Wow. So yes. I love the French word for your profession, for that particular part of your profession, souffleur. Yes. What's a, what's a good translation of that word? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Whisperer, right? Whisperer, right. So you're the singer whisperer, really. Just like yeah, the there you go. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so that, I mean, that is a really peculiar uh, part of our profession. And as I said... It's a dying art. We've only used a prompter once or twice in my time working at Cincinnati Opera. Once was for Mm -hmm. De Meister Singer when there was just so much text. Oh, yes. And the the principals really felt they needed the help. 
But uh, most opera companies operate without them anymore um, yeah. because the rehearsal period is long enough and everyone is expected to know their parts start to finish. So it is a, uh, it's a, it's a rarefied art. Uh, and I'm glad you have more strings to your bow than, um, than just being a, a, a souffleur. And <laughs> it, it brings me to, it brings me right back here to Cincinnati. And I'd love to spend some time um, talking about um, some of the joys you exp have experienced in these years working at CCM and the range of your activity as a uh, part of the team that is helping the, the, the stars of tomorrow um, get off on the right foot here. So here you are, you've benefited from such great teachers, uh, mm -hmm. whether it was, you know, whether it was your older sister mm -hmm. or a nun or a sympathetic person in your hometown or at, in Ottawa and then eventually New York in Ann Arbor. And now the student becomes the teacher what was it like for you maybe at the beginning of, of being formally in this capacity? Um, how did it feel to have the tables turned, the, the role reversal, as it were? Now you're helping the youngster as opposed to the youngster being helped. Mm -hmm. um, when, it was very interesting. The turning point when I started to teach was I went to Michigan, so just four years prior to mm -hmm. coming here. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of the interview was, of course, teaching, you know, tap dancing and all those things we do. And um, <laughs> the pianist who I was teaching, I had to teach a pianist just uh, playing solo piano, was playing a Liszt Petrarch sonnet that is one of my very favorite pieces mm. ever uh, in the solo version and then with Pavarotti. Was it Pace di Trovo? Which one was it? And she, of course, I it was the perfect thing, thing for me to teach. And I just, I don't think I really knew. I, you know, I hadn't, like most of us, studied to be a teacher. But I felt very strongly about the piece. And it was a perfect um, sort of real introduction. And uh, while I was at Michigan, I was teaching mostly pianists and a few hours a week of singers only, but some song literature classes too. But once I arrived here to answer your question, um, I took, like most of us, a huge overload for many, 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 many years. <laughs> and uh, I remember finishing a day of, I don't know, six or seven hours of coachings and coming home completely exhausted. Mm -hmm. Because, first of all, of course, it's very different to work with a young graduate student singer from working with a professional because there are all those things we want to instill in them. Um, and it takes a lot of energy to do it properly. And CCM having the kind of talented, very high level singers they have, it takes a lot more because they're very advanced. Yeah. So you're dealing with students, yes, but with amazing potential and real inquisitive nature. So you want to give them as much as possible in every hour. 
So I would say that the first two, three years were the most demanding. Hmm. It still is and always will be. But uh, I've maybe found a way to pace myself better through the days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a little bit more how to teach. Um so yeah, it's but it's extraordinary because they have made me learn so much um, mm-hmm. through you know the incredible questions they ask. Um, and I am a very passionate learner myself. It never stops. And so sometimes they ask me something and I just shrug my shoulders and I say, I have absolutely no idea i need to go research this and that happens regularly Hmm. so it is fantastic really really talk about the first time talk about the first time you work with a student so you're not a voice teacher but you have to obviously know a lot about how the instrument is produced the challenges these young singers face many of them are going through a transition from one repertoire to another they're growing up in front of you so that first time you work with a new student, what are you listening for? What are you watching as they sing their Petrarch sonnet for you, Pace non trovo, that you love so much? I guess I, but the first thing I always really want to see is how they seem to be more or less secure technically. Huh. Uh, not because I will teach them how to sing. That's not my specialty. We have the the professors who do that. But uh, also to really listen and see if I think what they are singing is possibly the best choice at that time. Because sometimes they arrive from different schools uh, where they have better or, you know, different yeah. levels of instruction. And sometimes yeah. also teachers give young singers things that are a little bit beyond their reach for mm-hmm. very good reasons. But I would say that vocal health is my biggest uh, concern is not the right word, interest. Mm-hmm. So that to me is essential. Um, breath. I listen if they're using their breath because that is one thing that can quickly take a toll on the instrument if they don't use that properly. As your teacher said, if they run out of breath, it's your fault. (laughs) Exactly. So I better do that right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then how they use language. Huh. Um, because uh, th- that is really also a growing more than center of interest, but passion for me. I think we have to find, or maybe I've decided I have to find a way to help our American singers develop language knowledge much further than what we currently can accomplish in our degree programs. Um, So, but of course, that's a way out there. But in coaching, that is something that I spend a lot of time on. 
And I know some young singers really just want to sing, sing, sing. So sometimes maybe they are a little bit frustrated with me. But <laughs> I think that if language is used properly, not just enunciation and diction and vowels and all that, but the syntax, that their communication, of course, is immediately quadrupled. Mm. So, yeah, vocal so health, breath, yeah, vocal and vocal. language. And you make a distinction very clearly that in your capacity as a teacher, you are not teaching them how to produce their voice. That's the job of the okay. singing teacher. Yeah. And this whole notion of coach, and we know the word coach from sport, of course, who is the, you know, in the caricature, it's the guy who's screaming from the sidelines to his players to get ready to do a different play, you know, or, uh, or the tennis coach who is relentlessly, you know, watching the serve of his young protege and on whose fortunes, you know, uh, a slight flick of the wrist depends. But coach in, in what you're doing is, is, I won't even say it's more subtle, it's simply different, but it's many of the same stuff. You are something of a cheerleader. Yeah. You're also something of a scold, I must, I must say. You have to be sometimes. <laughs> because I would imagine some of what you do is also help your young charges from descending into bad habits. Because yes. habits are so easy to form. What are a couple of things that you do to, um, as it were, break your young charges of what you see are incipient bad behavior? Besides sending them to bed without any supper. <laughs> <laughs> mm, of course, a lot of it is, it's a two-way street, always. There are mm -hmm. people to whom you say, watch a tendency to sing a little too much. This is my new favorite word, uh, scupando, scooping Scoop everywhere. <laughs> uh, it's, that's like my, favorite, that's like, my, like my favorite tempo, yes. non schleppendo, exactly. Yes. No yes. schlepping. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so don't, be, don't be scupando, exactly. Very new Italian word. Yes, because, you know, so uh, how do you correct? Well, some people, you tell them something once and it goes away. Other people, you tell them a dozen times and it's still not gone away. It's just, it's how their brain functions. It's not intelligence. It's just what people are focused on. And mm -hmm. singers, of course, while they're developing technically, um, are very preoccupied by that. So sometimes they come to their coaching, they just had a lesson, and they're thinking about that one particular sensation that they found in their lesson that made their high notes amazing and easy. Hmm. And meanwhile, you know, everything else goes to pots, the rhythm. the But so that I completely understand. Um, but the rest, you know, there is a lot of discipline uh, to being a singer like any other instrumentalist has to have. Or any uh, sports person. Yes, exactly. exactly. Because it is a very physical activity. Yeah. So it's always a little bit of um, gauging exercise. You know, is mm -hmm. this person needing me to stop? 
every time they change this rhythm to another rhythm because they are doing it everywhere? Uh, or should I just correct it a couple times and let it go to the end of the page? And then when we stop for something else, say, oh, by the way, make sure you fix this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, ultimately we want to get away from those basic things and think about more artistic things. You know, what is the shape of this? What kind of maybe musical form you're dealing with? And how do you think this um, participates in the development of your character? And how is the Countess feeling in this moment? Um, so a lot of that, you know. It sounds like even though you have been doing this now for several years and in various capacities, that that little girl who fell in love with opera the very first time she heard it uh, seems to sound at least professionally quite fulfilled. You seem to very much enjoy what you do. Oh, yes. I and is there, is there one part of your work uh, that um, that keeps you getting up every morning and going when we do have class that keeps you going into work, that keeps you going into rehearsal at the Met or keeps you coming to rehearsal at Cincinnati Opera? Is there something... Is there some motivating thing about music that is always providing you solace and energy? I think because I remember Martin thought I was crazy when I said that, but um, because it is endless, uh, because there is always something new to discover, uh, some unturned stone, something that you don't know, something that could be better, something that could be more expressive, more musical. It's music. It's I think music is what keeps me so passionate about it every day. Marie-France, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. We end every single one of our podcasts with the same set of questions. And so I, I hope you won't mind me subjecting you. You can claim the Fifth Amendment to any of these answers. No, no. All right. Uh, what do you normally have for breakfast? <laughs> well, when I was driving to Walnut Hills at 7 a.m. until March this year, I always had a smoothie and my coffee in the car. But now that I'm home, I can have a little bit of yogurt and a little bit of cashew cereal. And that's mm. it. How do you normally deal with stress? Normally, I go to the gym. But in the past whatever number of weeks, I walk many, many miles, like five, six miles a day in my neighborhood, as I did with my mother growing up in our little town. Who is your most important mentor or one of your most important mentors if you don't want to single one person out? If I have to, to single one, I have to have one for playing the piano and one for working with singers in opera. For playing the piano, I had the fortune of meeting Marek Jablonski in Banff, and I worked with him there for four summers and also went and spent weeks working with him in Toronto and in Banff. And for opera, I have to say that Craig Rutenberg took me under his wing when I knew nothing um, and has always been 
by my side, sometimes from a distance, watching me try to figure it out. But now we're very, very good friends, of course. What are you reading right now? Aha. Uh -huh. It's been a hard time to read, I have to say. Mm. I finally found that I could stay engaged in uh, a bookshop in Berlin by Françoise Frankel. She, it is a memoir, actually. She was a Polish Jew who opened a French bookstore in Berlin in 1921. And, of course, after Kristallnacht, her store was not destroyed, but she escaped Paris. And where I am currently in the book, she is in Nice, hiding. <laughs> wow. Um, it, is there a television series or a podcast that you particularly enjoy and make sure you catch every time you can? I watch some TV series with my teenagers. So interestingly enough, I've watched different seasons of Grey's Anatomy with my daughter. And now my son is in the middle of it, too. Um, otherwise, on TV, I tend to watch mostly foreign movies on canopy because mm. I love languages and they have Italian and German and French. So it's good. Is there a phone app that you find particularly useful? Well, the first one I would say is Duolingo because if I'm stuck oh, anywhere, yeah. <laughs> I can work on my German and it's been going. Um <laughs> I can't live without my Google Maps because I have absolutely no sense of direction. <laughs> and WhatsApp, as uh, installed by my Swede Daniel, has become very useful because I can be in touch with our students who are abroad. When we can go to restaurants again in Cincinnati, will you be revisiting a particularly favorite Cincinnati restaurant? I think I will want to go to Red Feather, where we were supposed to go. Uh, among the good advice you have received in your career, is there one or maybe two things that stand out from a particular individual? Nico Castell told me basically to be myself when I was getting antsy about not getting this or that. He said, don't worry. And I think that's the best thing for me. I can't be anything but myself. I'm not a good schmoozer. I'm not good at pushing I can only do me. <laughs> do you have a favorite musician outside of classical music? Oscar Peterson. Oh, what a good choice. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. What a god <laughs> of the piano. Absolutely. After a rough day in the car, he's always there with me, and he can make <laughs> me smile. Last but not least, what is your approach to convincing someone to try opera for the first time? I think generally I would talk about it enough <laughs> that after they've heard me talk about it, usually I use the plot if they don't know opera at all or languages. Um, otherwise, if they know some music, I try to play some for them. Um, but I think I can be pretty convincing, even with teenagers. So That's a particularly great gift. Marie-France Lefebvre, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a joy to speak with you and hear about your amazing upbringing and the, the series of events of good fortune that have brought you to Cincinnati and such a, 
a beloved spot on the faculty of CCM. Thank you so much for having me, Evans. These podcasts are produced by Cincinnati Opera and are engineered by John Brennan of Sonic Signatures. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. Thank you.